0: Hi, welcome to the New Covenant Presbyterian Church Sermon Podcast, a congregation of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the OPC, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Amen. Brothers and sisters, please remain standing and turn in your Bibles to the Song of Solomon, chapter 4. To the Song of Solomon, or the Song of Songs, chapter 4. We're reading from verse 1 through chapter 5, verse 1 this morning. Song of Songs 4.1 to 5.1. And please give your attention now to the reading of God's holy word. Behold, you are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair. You have dove's eyes behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats going down from Mount Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn sheep. Which have come up from the washing, every one of which bears twins, and none is barren among them. Your lips are like a strand of scarlet, and your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your veil are like a piece of pomegranate. Your neck is like the tower of David, built for an armory, on which hang a thousand bucklers, all shields of mighty men. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle, which feed among the lilies. Until the day breaks, and the shadows flee away, I will go my way to the mountain of Myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. You are all fair, my love, and there is no spot in you. Come with me from Lebanon, my spouse, with me from Lebanon. Look from the top of Amana, from the top of Sinir and Hermon, from the lion's dens, from the mountains of the leopards. You have ravished my heart, my sister, my spouse. You have ravished my heart with one look of your eyes, with one link of your necklace. How fair is your love, my sister, my spouse. How much better than wine is your love and the scent of your perfumes and all spices. Your lips, oh my spouse, drip as the honeycomb. Honey and milk are under your tongue and the fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. A garden enclosed is my sister, my spouse, a spring shut up, a fountain sealed. Your plants are an orchard of pomegranates with pleasant fruits, fragrant henna with spikenard, spikenard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes, with all the chief spices, a fountain of gardens, a well of living waters and streams from Lebanon. Awake, O north wind! And come, O south, blow upon my garden, that its spices may flow out. Let my beloved come to his garden and eat its pleasant fruits. I have come to my garden, my sister, my spouse. I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb with my honey. I have drunk my wine with my milk. Eat, O friends, drink, yes, drink deeply, O beloved ones. Thus far the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's go to the Lord once again in prayer. Oh, Father, how we do pray that you would help us as we come to this particular passage, particularly as this is the high point of the Song of Songs, the middle of the book, the the literary middle, the climax of the entire thing. Help us, oh Lord, to understand what you have written for your people. Help us to understand it, to, to profit by it, that we would know how to answer the objections of the world when it comes to sexuality, that we would rejoice in the good gifts that you've given to us. And Lord, even more than that, that all of these things would strengthen us as we comprehend the wonderful intimacy that you have with your people, that we would prize that above everything else, even above life itself. For Lord, we do ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. One of the things that is increasingly common, very common today, is that Christians are accused of being against sex. This usually comes from those who try to say that the the ethic of the scriptures on this topic is quite wrong, it's not right, and they'll say that one of the reasons, one of the ways that we, we, in which we can see that this is wrong is that Christians end up being just contrary to sex in all kinds of ways, and sometimes even Christians are mocked for this kind of thing, Christians are made fun of for the kind of ethic that they maintain, They're, we're told that it is outdated, that it is uh, no longer relevant, that is from a bygone age, and uh, that's the way it goes. But this is really quite far from being true. There's actually a story of uh, the Puritans where there was a man who was actually excommunicated for not having uh, sexual relations with his wife. He refused to do it. His wife complained to the session and he was in fact excommunicated uh, for that very thing. Uh, So far uh, where the Puritans, who even the stereotype was probably the strongest with them, so far are they from being against sex that it was actually required. It was required for those who were, uh, in fact, married if there are no other uh, obstacles. And so this is clearly not the case. Christians have never been uh, against sex. And one of the things that we need to think about then is in light of the challenge of the world, in light of the challenge of the world, particularly as it says that you must embrace this new sexual ethic that includes all manner of, of uh, deviant behaviors, behaviors, transgenderism, homosexuality, even just promiscuity in general. Uh, The idea of sex being okay as long as there is consensual, as long as as it's a consensual act. The question is, how are we as Christians to respond? How is the church to respond? And there have been a number of ways in which the church has responded. Sometimes the church simply responds by giving in to the pressures of the world where there is a compromise with the world. And many uh, churches will say, you know, well, Maybe it's not so bad if, um, if two people are living together before they're married. Uh, maybe it's not so bad if there is co- a consensual act. Maybe it's not so bad if there are two men who love each other and who want to live uh, in that way. Uh, perhaps it's not so bad. Uh, others, however, and this is what we are required to do in the scriptures, it's something we've been talking about since the beginning of this series on the Song of Songs. Others, however, maintain the ethic as it is found in the scriptures an ethic that the world is increasingly opposed to, a a teaching on sexuality that restrains sexuality to marriage, not because we have a low view of sex, but because we have the absolute highest view and we will not allow it to be defiled by these other acts. And that is, in fact, what we need to maintain. This is what we are called to do. Now, if we think about it, even uh, diving even a bit deeper, more specifically, how should the church respond? In some ways, there are two ways that we can respond. We can respond negatively. We can respond positively. By negative, I don't mean that it's a, a bad thing. I, I mean that we can say, we can speak to the world about what is wrong with what the world is saying. That would be that, a negative form of defense. But we can also speak to the world and explain to the world about what is right and good about sex as it has been described in the scriptures. The sexual ethic that is found in the scriptures. And it is important as we think about this challenge that comes from the world that is really everywhere. There's no way to avoid this challenge. Uh, It is everywhere. Even in some ways, it's uniquely strong here, but it is all over the world at this point. There is no way to avoid uh, this challenge. It's important that we understand we we do want to say very clearly there are certain things that are contrary to the teaching of scripture, there are certain things that are clearly contrary. It would be our, our negative defense. But we also want to maintain that there is quite a very good and beautiful teaching of the scripture with regard to sex. And if you give into the ethic of the world, you cannot also maintain the beauty of sexual intimacy as it is described in the scriptures. And we are called upon, therefore, to do both. And the positive view, of the sexual ethic of scripture uh, is found very, very clearly in the Song of Songs. This has been one of the reasons uh, why um, I've chosen to go through the Song of Songs is to to show this positive element, this positive nature. And one of the things that we've been discussing for some weeks now is that the importance, the reason why uh, sexual intimacy is so important and so good is because it itself is meant to be a reflection of the intimacy that God has with his people. So there are ways in which we've we've seen very commonly, Ephesians chapter 5, marriage itself is to be related to Christ and the church. But it's important to note that even the intimacy, the sexual intimacy, that very narrow uh, part of marriage, that that itself also is specifically grounded in terms of its importance. It's grounded in uh, in the fact that it is related to and is a picture of the relationship that God bears with his people. And so one of the reasons, then, for, for going through the Song of Songs, then, is to, to show that sexual intimacy in marriage is a good thing. It's a good thing that must be pursued. It must be pursued by both parties in the marriage. It must be cultivated. And, um, and insofar as, then, we maintain that, marriages themselves will be strengthened. And this is one of the ways in which, as we think about marriage referring to Christ in the church, this is one of the ways in which you are called upon and you are obligated to pursue if you are married. You are obligated to pursue it with regard even to uh, sexual intimacy. And so there are a number of important things that we learn from the Song of Songs, and these are particularly important to keep in mind as we come to this chapter, because this chapter is, as I mentioned, the climax of the whole song. It is the center. It is the center. It's where the act of consummation actually happens, and it is where uh, all of these themes come together. The sexual ethic, as the scriptures describe it, is put forth very, very clearly here. The beauty of the act of consummation is put forth very, very clearly. And also, the relationship between this act and the the relationship that God has, the covenantal communion that God has with his people, is also put forth uh, very, very clearly. Now, just to remind you where we are, it's important to keep this in in mind again, since this is uh, the the literary center of the entire book. It's important to remember that uh, we've been looking at the Song of Songs and we've seen how the Song of Songs opens with three particular passages where the Shulamite woman is separated from the one that she loves. She's separated from her beloved. She uh, has great longing to be with him and yet there is uh, this separation. This is maintained until we get to chapter 3 verse 6 where there is um, the entrance of Solomon to uh, the wedding and he is both coronated, he has his coronation and his wedding uh, on uh, the same day as his bride comes out of the wilderness and they are finally together. So you'll remember then that uh, up to chapter 3, verse 6, they, the, the two lovers have been separated. They come together in marriage and now this is the very next thing that happens. Now, since this is the center of the book and since there's actually quite a lot of things to discuss about this uh, particular chapter, we're actually going to look at this uh, chapter over the next two weeks. So my, my plan here is this week to look at the way in which uh, chapter 4 through five, One uh, deals with uh, marriage in itself. So the, the instructions that we can gain from this passage in terms of its implications for marriage, human marriage, And then next week we'll look at the way in which this is related to uh, God's communion with his people. So that'll be the the way in which we do that. And that's just simply because there's uh, so much to do with regard to this particular passage. And again, remember, the point of the chapter is to draw connections between these two things such that the importance of sexual intimacy in marriage would be grounded in the communion that God has with his people in Christ. Now, we'll look at this passage today under three headings. As we consider again the way this, in which this is related uh, to the context of marriage. First, in verses 1 through 7, there is a description of the woman, simply a description of the woman. In 8 to 11, there is an invitation to the woman. And then in verses 12 through 5, 1. There is the consummation, the actual act of consummation uh, with the woman. So we'll have the description, the invitation, uh, and then the actual consummation. Everything is moving towards um, that act of consummation that happens at the end of chapter 4, and particularly at the beginning uh, of chapter 5. So in light of that, brothers and sisters, look with me then again at verses 1 through 7. We'll notice again the point is that Solomon is now beholding his wife, his bride, and all of her beauty, and he is praising her for the beauty uh, that she has. You'll notice that this section begins and ends with this declaration of, of, of her beauty. So in verse 1, you are fair, my love. In the original, it can also be translated uh, beautiful. You are beautiful, my love. It's just a common word for beauty. You are fair, my love. You are, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are fair. And again in verse 7, you are f- all fair, my love, and there is no spot in you. Everything between those, that, those brackets is a, is a description uh, of the beauty of the woman. Uh, And one of the things that this um, indicates to us, before we even get into the specifics uh, of the way in which Solomon describes his bride, is that words are important. Uh, Words are important in terms of your cultivation of intimacy with your wife, if you are a man and married uh, here this morning. Uh, It's important that you tell your wife that you think that she is beautiful. It's important that you cultivate this and that you let her know. No no woman uh, regrets hearing that from her husband that he thinks that she uh, is beautiful. And Solomon goes way out of his way, very poetic. I mean, even even just in terms of the beauty of all of these metaphors that he gives shows that he has thought long and hard about how to communicate to his wife that he thinks that she is quite beautiful. And this is an important thing to do. Uh, It's important thing to do because there is a tendency, there's always gonna be this tendency that um, love is very exciting um, when you're first married, but it can become commonplace uh, after you are married for some time. There is a need to be very intentional about cultivating intimacy with your wife. And one of the things that we see here is this is a great example. This, are, this can even be a, uh, an example of how you can show your wife that you think, in fact, that she is beautiful. And that's what Solomon uh, does here. This is a way a husband can rejoice over his wife. And remember, this is even the language that the prophets use for God. God will rejoice over you as a husband rejoices over his wife. Let your wife have an experience of what it would mean for God to rejoice over her, a a foretaste of that by the way in which you rejoice over her and show her that you believe that she is beautiful. That's what Solomon is doing here. Now, as we get into some of the specifics with regard to verses 1 through 7, uh, it's important to to note before we we do that that um, some of these metaphors um, can sometimes appear to be strange to our ears today. Um, What does it mean? Is it really a beautiful thing if you say that your wife's hair is like a flock of goats coming down uh, a mountain or that her teeth are like shorn uh, sheep? So we need to talk a little bit about what is happening here Uh, because in a lot of ways um, we don't use metaphors exactly like this, but it's important to note and what I want to help you to see this morning is that these metaphors are uh, amazingly beautiful. And if you think about what is actually being said, um, it is is quite complementary to uh, the woman. Now, in in order to see that, we have to understand what is happening with these particular metaphors. There is something in the metaphor that links back to the part of the body that Solomon is describing. Um, It's not to say that everything... In terms of the, the, the thing that he is using as a metaphor is exactly like the part of the body. There's one thing that reminds him of a certain part of the body. And the thing, there's a real connection between the two, but there's also a natural beauty to the thing that Solomon is describing. And part of the compliment is in simply recognizing the great natural beauty of, of the thing that he's seeing. And so if you think about this one about the hair being like a flock of goats coming down Mount Gilead, imagine Seeing in the distance a, a, a mountain set against the sky and seeing a, a, a very large flock of goats and seeing them come down the mountain, if you just imagine that scene, it would be quite something to behold. It'd be quite a, a, wonder, a wonderful thing, awe-inspiring in a lot of ways. And imagine seeing these goats come down this mountain and it looks like little flowing uh, brown things coming down. And what Solomon is saying is your hair is like that. Your hair flows like the, the, the brown that you see, uh, when these flocks of goats, uh, come down the mountains. Um, it's quite a beautiful thing. Um, when I look at the, at the, a majestic mountain and the, the, the glory of, uh, God's creation and seeing, uh, the, the scale of the, these, the, this large flock of goats and the waviness, uh, that awe-inspiring scene reminds me of your hair. That is what Solomon is saying. So in light of that, again, um, the metaphors seem strange to us at first glance, but if you think about them, all of them are actually wonderfully beautiful and amazing. And the same thing is true really with all these. So Solomon describes the eyes of his wife as doves. Doves were known for their natural beauty and elegance. And so Solomon's like, you know, I see these doves, I see their elegance, I see their beauty, and it reminds me of the beauty of your eyes behind the veil. Uh, that, that is what he is saying to her. He looks at her teeth, her smile, and he says, you know, I, I, I see the, the the whiteness of sheep immediately after they're washed. They would have been far whiter than they were before they were washed, and so uh, the, the whiteness is um, emphatically seen. And I see that, I see all of them are paired together, they're beautiful, they're put together, and this is how your smile, this is what your smile makes me think of, this is what your teeth uh, make me think of. Or if you think of uh, the majestic tower of David, um, he's, he's not trying to say that her neck is really long, he's he's trying to say that when I th- when I look at the city of Jerusalem and I see this wonderful majestic tower that David has built, that that sense of awe and majesty is what I get when I see you. Uh, even when I see your neck, when I when I look at, at this part, it, there's a there's a certain similarity of shape, and it makes me think of the majesty that I, that I feel when I see you. Uh, your breasts are like twin fawns. Now, everything else in verses one through seven uh, is um, emphasizing a part of the woman's body that's related to the face or that the head area, um, and the only thing that is mentioned that is separate is the breasts, and that I think this is. This is because um, the breast, in terms of the, being a part of the woman's body, is particularly linked to, to sexual pleasure, and that's found in the scriptures as well. And here he again compares, uh, compares her breast to fawns, uh, animals that are again known for their beauty and tenderness. And so again, all of these metaphors and descriptions, um, you can immediately picture all of these things. And if you picture these things in your mind, you're immediately struck with their beauty, and the idea is that the, the Solomon is looking out, he's seeing all of these wonderful majestic things and every single one of them reminds him of something uh, that is related to his wife, something of his wonderful bride. And we'll get into, particularly next week, to, to show that, uh, and this is not just limited to one through seven, but throughout this entire chapter, all of these images are in some ways related to uh, the temple and the the land of Jerusalem, uh, the city of Zion. All of them are there, therefore meant to convey uh, not just beauty in general, but the beauty of God dwelling with His people in the land that He has chosen to dwell with them. And we'll see that more particularly next week. Uh, but this is the thing: that the highest instances of beauty that you can see, all of it reminds me of you. That's what Solomon uh, is saying, and this is something then to strive for. It's something to strive for. You who are married, and you who are men, or even if you think if you're if you're not married, um, this is the way to treat a woman. This is the way to treat her uh, in marriage. Now, again, it's not the way you treat a woman before marriage. This is only after the, the, the wedding. Uh, but it is a way that you are to treat uh, a woman. You are to show her that you truly believe that she is beautiful. And you want her to, to know and to feel that you believe that she is, in fact, beautiful. And so before the actual act of coming together, Solomon works very hard uh, to show her that he believes that she's beautiful. Now, there's a number of other important things as we think about uh, verses 1 through 7 that are just general. Uh, Notice, all throughout this chapter, even as in the Song of Songs here, we have a description of the actual act of consummation. There is a great emphasis, even here, on modesty and chastity. That it is part of the beauty of the bride that she has remained chaste and modest up until this point. And and, um, her Commitment to these things enhances, not doesn't detract from. It enhances her beauty. So there are there's twice in terms of the description that's given to her, uh, particularly uh, in verses one through seven, where her veil is mentioned, and veil being here a a, a picture of her modesty. Uh, not all of her is available to even be seen by others. She she covers herself in this way. Uh, notice here, particularly the eyes are given, the eyes and the temples. They're both beautiful behind the veil. They are beautiful as such, not just in terms of the eyes themselves, but there is a particular added beauty in the modesty that the woman displays as being covered by the veil before the actual act happens. And this is something that's important to, to notice and to, to keep in mind if you're a young woman here. The world will tell you that there is this connection between beauty and immodesty, um, that there is a, a kind of desire to be um, desired by men that shows that you are beautiful. And and there can be a tendency to think, well, the opposite means I won't be beautiful. But in the scriptures, modesty is praised as something that enhances beauty, does does not detract from it. Um, It's not wrong for a young lady to pursue beauty. It's not wrong at all for a young lady to do that. Uh, But it's important to pursue it in such a way that your beauty also is enhanced by your godliness that people can see that you are a a beautiful young lady insofar as you uh, take care of yourself, but also uh, that you are modest in such a way that your your beauty is enhanced by even your godliness. And this would be even a good way to, um, if you think about who you want to marry, the kind of person you want to attract is one who is uh, a godly man. A godly man is going to be impressed by a beauty that is also modest it is very attractive solomon here is praising his wife for this very thing he finds it quite attractive and many and many men in fact do and so modesty and chastity is emphasized we'll see even throughout if you think of um, the woman's neck being like a tower um, part of it is means that it's inaccessible uh, it's 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 guarded very heavily with weapons uh, not anybody can just come. The, the woman is described as a locked garden in verse 12. She's a sealed fountain. Uh, even, even that's right before the act of consummation. The, one of the, the things he says as the act is basically about to commence is he praises her for being uh, chaste, that, that, that nobody could get to her. And this has even been emphasized in other places. If you think of the call that's given in chapter 2, Um, if if the man wants to come find her, he has to do it in the rocks and the crags. The idea is it's a very difficult place to get to. She's described here in verse eight as having to come down from the mountain that's guarded by leopards and lions. Uh, She's not easy to get to because she is chaste, because she's chaste and she is uh, modest. All throughout the passage, there is uh, this emphasis on this, even as there is a description of the act of consummation itself. Now, another thing to note is that with regard to the mention of her breasts, very clearly um, there is some level of nakedness that is, that is uh, present here uh, as he's able to describe uh, her, her breasts, in, particularly in verse 5. Uh, verse, yeah, in verse 5. Um, And one of the things that this highlights to us is the reality of what Moses says in Genesis chapter 2, 25. You'll remember that right after, in in Genesis chapter 2, 23 and 24, where the covenant of marriage is instituted, the very next thing that is said is the man and the woman were naked and they were not ashamed. They were naked and they were not ashamed. In the context of the institution of marriage, the way in which a man and a woman can be in the presence of another without fear of being shamed by another is in the context of uh, of marriage, this is how you can approach one another, and this is what Solomon here uh, is describing. Uh, the The kind of intimacy that he has with his wife is on the basis of uh, this covenant intimacy that he has. And so, in light of this, he gets done with this beautiful description. He declares really his intentions of what he is he's wanting to do with verse six: "Until the day breaks and the shadows flee away, I will go my way to the mountain of myrrh, and to the hill of frankincense, um, all throughout." This chapter and this, this passage, verses one to seven, he's described her, um, in, with various features that could be found on a mountain. So the idea is he's going to her as a whole and he is going to, uh, enjoy this, this act. This is immediately then followed in verse eight with the second part, verses eight through 11, with the invitation that's given to the woman. The invitation. So he describes her as beautiful and then he invites her, uh, into this, into this sexual intimacy, uh, with him. He describes this again as coming down from a mountain, uh, coming down from the mountains, uh, from Lebanon, from Amana, from the the den of the lions and the leopards. Again, um, come down from from the place where you've been protected uh, and and, um, join me in this act. Notice this is immediately followed in verses 9 through 11 with the description of not just the woman now, but even the love that she has. This would be, this would include uh, sexual love. How fair is your love, my sister, my spouse? How much better than wine is your love? Um, Solomon does not just see his bride is beautiful, but even the love that she has and the love that they're about to experience is, in fact, uh, beautiful as well. Now, again, we'll come back to this next week, but just notice very briefly that all these descriptions are very much related to themes that um, an Old Testament saint and we, as clear, careful readers of the of the Bible as well, ought immediately to pick up on and, and understand as being about more than simply uh, the act of consummation that's being given here. Notice, for instance, that uh, in verse 11 that this love is, particularly with the lips, is described as milk and honey, honey and milk, uh, offering very clear connections to the promised land. Frankincense and myrrh are uh, things found particularly in the temple. Uh, Others have pointed out that the the spices uh, really can't be found in such extravagance in any kind of particular place. This is what we see particularly in uh, verses 12 through 15. Um, So the idea is this this garden is um, beyond belief in terms of how, uh, fruitful it is. Again, then drawing us immediately into thinking about the Garden of Eden. Uh, all of these things are are related with regard to the invitation. But one of the things that's important as we consider the way in which this is important for our understanding of the Bible's teaching on sexuality within marriage is that the idea of this, this invitation to this act being linked to marriage is very, very clear in the text. Notice that four times Four times in the space of just a few verses, just from eight to 11, four times he calls uh, the Shulamite, his spouse. Could also be translated, my wife. Um, Come down, my wife. And then again, my wife, my wife, my wife, my wife. Everything he's describing, when he's describing her love that he's going to share with her, he says over and over again, my wife. This word has not been used in any other part of the Song of Songs to this point. The first time it's used is here. Uh, there was great desire for coming together before. There was never a description of the of the Shulamite as a wife. And there was also never an act. And even even beyond that, at the next section, verse 12, where there's the actual description of the act, my spouse. And then again in five one, where there is the actual record of of the act of consummation. Again, my spouse. Over and over again, there is this emphasis on the Shulamite as his bride. This is even more emphatically the case as we consider the the connection with 3, 6 to 11 uh, that we looked at last week. Solomon comes, the day of the joy of his heart, the day of his wedding. And then this is what immediately follows. The point is very, very clear. This kind of sexual intimacy is reserved for marriage. It is in the context of the covenant that's between a man and a woman. That, that in fact, the two do come together. And it's only in the context of that covenant that this invitation is given uh, to the woman to join him uh, in this particular act. And so that's the invitation that's given. You'll notice then in verses 12 through 5.1, there is the description of the actual act itself. And, I'll, and it's important to note again that there is another highlight of chastity. Uh, the, as he speaks about his desire to come to his bride, who he describes as a garden and to enjoy the fruits of that garden, to be a, a metaphor for, the, for sexual intimacy, he describes her first as a locked garden, an enclosed garden, a garden that nobody can enter into and a, a fountain that is shut up, a spring that is shut up and a fountain that is sealed. Again, even as he is coming to her, there is still the praise uh, of her chastity. And that praise, and that praise points, uh, it's, it, and that praise is enhanced by uh, her own modesty in this life. Now, as I mentioned, there is um, the, the, this language of the garden and the fountain is very, very clear, has very, very clear ties into uh, both the temple and the Garden of Eden. This is where we see uh, very clearly that the the writer that Solomon is wanting to emphasize for us, that there is a connection between the union of a man and a woman in marriage and the intimacy that God has with his people, that there is uh, all these things point to the dwelling of God with his people. Um, It's in Eden that you find such abundant fruit. It is in Eden and particularly then even in the temple where there is a fountain that flows out of the garden. You think of Genesis chapter 2 or even Psalm 46 Psalm 36, Ezekiel 47, all these things emphasize uh, this same thing. The point is, is that sexual intimacy is something that is good, and it is important because it is a reflection. It is a reflection of the intimacy that God has with his people. And this, again, brothers and sisters, is is the reason why it is absolutely necessary for you to take it seriously. Um, that you don't just think this is just something that's separated from my walk as a Christian. Uh, it is necessary for you to pursue sexual intimacy with your spouse. That it be a normal, good, and healthy thing where there is joy that's experienced on both sides. That it's something that's looked forward to by both sides. It must be cultivated. It must be cultivated. Um, it will even, it will help you even in your understanding of the gospel in some ways. Uh, that's, that's the point that's being made here. It is to be, to be a picture of the, uh, the relationship that God bears with his people. And notice, this is even emphasized. It's not just one sided. Solomon's clearly rejoicing over his bride, but notice his bride very much wants the same thing. She, you know, he gives the invitation, he describes her, and then the next thing that, when she actually finally speaks in verse 16, she says, Awake, O north wind! And come, O South, blow upon my garden that its spices may flow. Let my beloved come to his garden and eat its pleasant fruits. He's described her as this beautiful garden. And, and he says, and, and she says, uh, let it be that my beloved, when he comes to this garden, that he would take pleasure in it, that he would enjoy it. And she wants to be uh, made beautiful to that end. Uh, she, she wants to enjoy this uh, in the same way. And then the act is then described. In verse 5-1, the beginning of verse 5-1, this is what it means. I have come to my garden. So she's the garden is the idea. My sister, my spouse, I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb with my honey. I have drunk my wine with my milk. Um, I have thoroughly enjoyed this garden. We have shared in this together. Then there is the friends. In the context of uh, godly marriage, there can be even re- rejoicing from those who are outside of it. Eat, O oh, friends. Drink. Yes, drink deeply, O oh, beloved Ones. Now, a um, few things to note, particularly with verse sixteen, um, it's important to note that this that the the act of coming together is to be something that's regular, pursued from both sides and enjoyed by both sides. That's really the goal uh, with regard to sexual intimacy uh, within marriage. It's to be something where there is where both sides feel loved in ways that are appropriate, and there is in fact. Uh, sexual intimacy. Another thing to note is, note that when in one, when Solomon describes the act, he says that he has come to my garden. My garden. Um, the garden is not himself. The garden is his wife. And yet he has no problem saying that it is my garden. Um, has come to my garden, my sister, my spouse. I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. that's related to her, not to him, but it's still in his possession, so he says. I have eaten my honeycomb with my milk. I have drunk my wine with my milk. One of the things that happens in marriage is that the two do become one, such that uh, the body of the wife belongs to the husband, and the body of the husband belongs to the wife. And this is what is being set set forth here. When he describes this act of union, this act of coming together, uh, he recognizes he's coming to something that is, is his in some regards. Uh, this is even uh, emphasized by the Apostle Paul in, in 1 Corinthians 11, er, 1 Corinthians 7, where he speaks about uh, the need not to deprive one another, and there he's speaking about sexual intimacy within marriage. And, he, he, the, and the reason he gives is because he says, you know, the, the body of the husband belongs to the wife, and the body of the wife belongs to the husband. That is to say, if you're married, uh, if you are uh, a wife, your husband has a right to your affection and sexual intimacy. He has a right to it that you, you do not have the right to deprive him of. Now, there can be uh, unhealthy ways in which that can be um, taken advantage of, but, but the basic principle is uh, your husband has a right to that. And um, there ought to be, in terms of the goal of, of any marriage, uh, a rejoicing that that is the case. The opposite is also true uh, for you who are husbands. Your wife has a right to your affection, she has a right to your affection and a right to sexual intimacy with you. She has a right to feel loved by you. And if you withhold this from her, you are withholding something that is her due. Uh, you belong to her and she belongs to you. It works, in fact, both ways. And this is the reason why um, sexual intimacy is, is it's not the only indication, but it is one indication of, of a healthy marriage. Uh, that There, there really can no, can't be a healthy marriage, uh, unless there's some other kind of obstacle that's getting in the way, um, some kind of physical obstacle. Uh, but in all other circumstances being equal, uh, a healthy marriage must include regular sexual intimacy between a husband and a wife. There is a deficiency, if this is not the case, there is a deficiency in your marriage being a reflection of Christ in the church, if this is not the case. Because the sexual union is meant to uh, be a picture of the communion that you have with Christ himself. And therefore, this is something that we need to strive for, uh, brothers and sisters. It is a good thing. And this is, if we take a step back from the whole thing, this whole thing is the good thing that we defend and that we maintain when we hold on to the sexual ethic as it's found in the scriptures. This is the positive thing that is marred and ruined, by the sexual ethic that's put forward in the world. It's, it's completely ruined and perverted. You cannot have both. You cannot have both. Um, there are all kinds of problems with promiscuity. There are all kinds of problems, and, and, and it's very sinful uh, when you think of homosexuality. There are all kinds of problems with transgenderism, and they cause their own problems. But there's also, if you engage in those kinds of things, if you give up the sexual ethic of the scriptures, you also forego something that is quite good and glorious and beautiful. And so it is for you then, especially if you're married to pursue these things, to cultivate these things. If you're not married, so to still keep yourself pure that you may seek the good as it is described here in the scriptures. God's good design for sexual intimacy in marriage is something that we must rejoice in and celebrate. It is beautiful and glorious. And may it be that God would grant you, uh, if you are married, godliness in your marriage, that every part of your marriage, including sexual intimacy, would reflect Christ and the church. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how we do thank you for your word, which teaches us about everything everything that we could need for life and godliness, everything that we would need for doctrine for correction, for reproof, for training in righteousness. Lord, your word teaches us, and we are so thankful for the wisdom that is found in it. We're so thankful that in your word, we have the wisdom that has come from you, the wisdom that teaches us how to respond to the various ideas that are out there in the world, the sins of the world that are so so forcefully thrust upon us. Lord, we do pray that you would help the church to to. Uh, stay strong against these pressures, but also, Lord, that you would cultivate godliness in marriages within the church. For, Lord, we know that the basic unit of the church is the family, and all good families must start with good marriages. Lord, may it be that even as we think of sexual intimacy, that uh, our marriages would be strengthened, and that in so doing, O Lord, that there would be godliness uh, in every way that is fully pleasing to you and that bears much good fruit. We do ask all this in the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about our church, please visit our website at newcovenantopc.com. You can also follow us on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. May God enlighten the eyes of your heart that through the preached word, your eyes may be opened to behold the glory of Christ more and more.